Tēnā koutou, I'm Karen Hay and thanks for joining me for the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast, where we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors share their experience of living as a writer in Aotearoa. In this final episode of Season 2, we're going to mix diary records, oral history and podcast formats. It's certain to be a unique episode. Dennis McEldowney is remembered for his 20 years as editor of the Auckland University Press. He published important works such as Keith Sinclair's biography of Sir Walter Nash and returned to print many New Zealand classics like Robin Hyde's Godwit's Fly. Dennis was also an award-winning author, an active member of PennNZ and a great diary keeper. His book, Full of the Warm South, was essentially his diaries of living in 1960s Dunedin. In June 2000, when he sat down with Michael King to talk about his literary life, he read from his diary records before the two men discussed them, and that's exactly what you're going to hear today. Diary readings are underscored with music and followed by a discussion about what the diary revealed, starting with a diary reading from Friday 13th December 1957, that year's NZ Christmas party. Part of us at the National Club, up some stairs into a lounge decorated with pictures of Sir Sidney, and they were there by the time I arrived, Louis Johnson, Monty Holcroft and the Mulgans. Others gradually drifted in, but not a large number, about 20 in all, including wives. The Penn Christmas party is not a first priority, it would seem, with most members. But still, it was quite a cosy number and I was about able to speak to most of them. Only the whole affair reminded me of a passage in my book describing such affairs. I think I did that rather well. It was an evening of unfinished conversations as people were snatched away, or I snatched myself away to find someone else. I think these pen affairs will be useful for making introductions which I may follow up later if I wish, rather than themselves. Still, it was quite fun. I talked to Lou Johnson for a while, and he wondered how Chapman and Hall would react to a request to print a chapter or two of the book in Parent and Child, at which Alan Mulgan, coming in on the last word, said, are you referring to particular publishers or to publishers in general? Which started a discussion about publishers. I also spoke to Pat Johnson, who told me she enjoyed the book, but wished I'd put names to people because she was left in suspense as to whether it was she who looked sardonic at the mention of her husband's poetry, though Lou assured her it would be the Smithermans. I looked enigmatic, but did permit myself to say, I've never met Mrs. Smitherman. When that sinks in, I'll probably not be spoken to by the Johnsons again. They have a daughter, four and a half months, who is named Cassandra, Lou named her, said Pat, and I suspect it was because he'd already written a poem about it, though he denies it. I'm a bit worried about this. What if she turns out to be a happy optimist? They at least ought to call her second name Pollyanna to play safe. And I talked to the Mulgans for a while. Mrs. M is a very charming gentlewoman. He is getting a bit doddery and has a tendency to hold forth. I forget how Darcy Creswell came to be the subject of the discussion, but he has lately sent Alan Morgan poems praising the heroic patriots of Cyprus, 
which has annoyed Alan Mulgan considerably, and also some skits on modern poets which have delighted him. I may say that, that uh, partly as a result of the meeting here, I, I got to know the Mulgans a bit better and visited them at their place. I um, got the the impression that, in the words my mother always used, the old grey mare was the better horse. I I had the feeling that uh, um, Mrs. Morgan had much the sharper mind, and in some ways almost a cynical mind. Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, Alan was a bit doddery then, but he was also, of course, he he always described himself as liberal. He didn't like to be called conservative, but he was fairly conservative in yeah. some some ways. Yeah. Uh, but this was another thing that interests me looking back, that um, I was attracted to uh, writers of my own age or older who were disaffected with the society of the time, into which, in some ways, um, I... I felt myself rather bonded and obliged to be bonded. But I also liked uh, some of the older writers. I despised some of them, but I, um, I liked some of them. And uh, um, Alan Morgan was... I found him an, uh, an interesting person to read. Just, just by way of a bleak comment on that. I have always been disappointed by almost everything of Alan Mulligan's that I've read. Yeah. That it turned out to be shallow, banal, not invariably, but much more yes. so than I would have expected yes. Yes. for someone who was a person of stature in the literary community yes. at that yeah. time. Yeah. 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 Yes, I can see that. And so. also for someone who was John Mulligan's father. Yes, yeah. One never feels that about John Mulligan. No, one doesn't, but, yeah. but, but Mrs. Mulligan was John Mulligan's mother. <laughs> yes, I see that, right. Yeah. <laughs> At that time, he'd just been um, sacked by the Auckland Star, in which he'd been writing a column under the name of Serrano. He says he enjoys being free of them, and says his wife's comment was, my heart is like a singing bird. But he's old, unhappy at being thought too old-fashioned. A.E. Curry then came up, and said to Mulgan, I hope you are not on this ghastly friends of the ghastly Alexander Ghastly Turnbull Ghastly Library. The idea of asking that pipsqueak Belitho to deliver the memorial lecture. What's your objection? said A.M. That no self-respecting writer will consent to follow him. It is no doubt one of Patrick Anthony Lawler's bright ideas. I can only suppose that he has heard to the same brand of religion as Patrick Anthony Lawler. Then I was talking to Monty Holcroft, who was pleased to hear I admired Aunt Daisy, and told me she is 76, which ends a lot of speculation. Uh, they tried their hardest to persuade her to tell her age without success, but she did tell them the name of the ship she came to in New Zealand. Uh, came to New Zealand, and so they rang the shipping company who found her age on the passenger list. <laughs> I find that at a certain level of cultural pretension it becomes obligatory to despise Aunt Daisy at a higher level where people are not afraid to give themselves away. Admiration sets in. 
Holcroft said he'd noticed the same thing. James Robertson, he said, thought the world of her. Mary and John Bullock came in. Mary Bullock is one of one I've never met, but I feel as if I have. Holcroft had been telling me she'd just written the first true confession for a long time, which I said I was glad to hear, and I asked her why she didn't collect them into a book, which she said she must do. Meanwhile, she's written another play. It's screamingly funny, she says. I don't pretend to write the great New Zealand play, she said, but they give a lot of fun to a lot of women. Who wants to write the great New Zealand play, I asked. I'd like to if I could, she said. Celia and Cecil Manson, the historical writers, were also there. Celia and Mari are the two women on the pen executive. I'm just going to England, Celia said to me, and Mari wants to know how can they replace me on the executive. I'm also scared of the intellectual men that I never open my mouth. But last meeting, Mari said, I, several times, quite loudly. And when I congratulated her on her courage, she said I was quoting one of my plays. That interested me because I was, I was never on the executive of the pen in Wellington, but um, I was on uh, the occasional, especially church committee, uh, which always had a token woman who never said anything. And I think that was just uh, the period. Yeah. It's huh? very interesting because um, Mary Bullock's completely dropped out of sight now. Yes, so yes. She was, but the time that I joined Penn in the early 70s, yes. she was still one of the Wellington stalwarts. Yes. But she was regarded by that time as being one who came from the New Zealand women writers stable rather yes. than from yes. uh, the mainstream uh, professional writers. It, it, it has surprised me, though, there have been three volumes of uh, anthologies from the listener and nothing of hers in any of them. Presumably that means that they turn out not to be things of enduring interest. Yes, probably. Yes, yes, uh, probably has. Yes, because she, I suppose if anyone at that time asked someone to nominate the major or the most visible listener contributor, she would have yes. been nominated. Yes, yes, yeah. She started as a reporter, and she was quite a good reporter too. Penn was very much um, what I uh, described in my piece in the uh, Oxford History of New Zealand Literature as a, a club of gentlemen amateurs in Wellington, um, or had been. But um, what made the difference was the 1951 Writers' Conference in Christchurch, which made a lot of the, this gap between the younger and the older writers. And the younger writers were talking about founding a society of the authors of their own, but decided in the end that en masse they would join uh, Penn. Which they take it over. Yes, yes. yeah. Uh, which, in fact, was but what they did. Of all the people you mentioned there, yeah. the only two who really, in retrospect, turn out to have been, well, possibly three, yeah. real writers. Of course, Alistair Campbell, Lou Johnson, and perhaps Monty Holcroft. Yes, 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 that's right. The rest, very yes. much now, would be seen as the, yes. the amateurs that they were. Yes. Even if, like Stuart Perry, they seemed extremely distinguished people. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's right. But I suspect that you may find the same about any meeting, any current meeting of pen in another sure 40 right. years. But that's, a, but that's another thing yes. you wouldn't welcome hearing you yeah. say. <laughs>
No, no. There's only one other uh, pen gathering that I recorded uh, going to while I was living in Wellington. Uh, in the meantime, there was another thing here which might be rather interesting. This is the 22nd of June, 1961. I had a rather odd ring this, uh, this morning from Ruth Mackay, the poet. John Beaglehole, she told me, was resigning as one of the pen nominees on the Literary Fund Committee, the other being Monty Holcroft, on account of his appointment to the Arts Council. And she rang to ask my permission to put my name forward for the vacancy. I expressed my sense of the high honour, etc., but declined on account of the uncertainty of my future plans. And I was glad to have had that excuse to decline gracefully when she went on to tell me the reason she wished to propose me, which was that someone else was proposing Jim Baxter. Quote, and while I have the greatest admiration for Jim Baxter as a poet, I don't think that for this position he is objective enough. Which means mainly that Jim Baxter doesn't like Ruth Mackay's poetry and has often said so with considerable vehemence. The poor woman doesn't know that I don't much like her poetry either. But I certainly don't want to be involved in this kind of literary politics. I'm all for a quiet life, which I doubt if a member of the Literary Fund would have, however unanimously proposed. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And of course, Jim, that, would that have been then the year that he got his book? Yes, yes, yes. And it led to all that trouble, of course, when poetry yearbook was two of his poems and yes. was, not, uh, yes. was not given the subsidy and so forth. Yes, unless unless his poems were removed. That's right, yes. Yeah. yes. That's the sort yes. of thing that Frank Mackay ought to have known about for the Baxter um, biography. Yeah. Along with the fact that he was sitting Marilyn Duckworth on his knee at about the same time. <laughs> yeah. Have you read Marilyn's book? Marilyn Duckworth's book? Uh, no, I haven't. No. Oh, well, no. there's some yes. no, nice some... surprises there too. Yes, yes. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We want to take a minute and let you know the results of the latest Writers Earning in New Zealand report. It shows that, on average, Kiwi writers earn only 31% of their personal income through writing, with over half the respondents saying they have to rely on their partner's income or having another job to survive. For this reason, NZSA continues to lobby for sustainable incomes for writers and advocate against moves to erode their rights. To join us, visit authors.org.nz. Dennis McEldowney believed a diary was a better keeper of history than memory. In this episode, his diary readings are underscored with music and followed by a discussion with Michael King on what the diary revealed. We re-enter Dennis's diary on 13th of March 1959 when he recalled a gathering of Penn in Wellington to meet British-based writer Dan Davin, who was visiting New Zealand. 
We were decanted at Wakefield House. Several people were there already. Mr. Holcroft introduced us to Mrs. Glover, who was collecting the toll. And I wish I knew if it was the same Mrs. Glover that Dennis Glover had years ago or another. And to a small middle-aged woman in brown with a fur hat, whose name neither was caught, and who said it was so thrilling to meet all celebrities. So Barbara Cooper, who was my friend who had taken her at me, and asked Ruth Mackay about her later, and she said she was Lorna, but she'd never caught her second name either, and she was shortly to become Mrs. Holcroft. Mr. Holcroft was provided with a wife at the time the last who's who was issued. Another thing to be discreetly inquired about. Tony Vott got us drinks, a sherry apiece, and we each made it last throughout. I spoke to Alan Morgan, and who are you, he said. But when I told him, he said he thought it was, and he'd been trying to write a letter to me for days, because he'd read and enjoyed my book. So I said I'd read and enjoyed his, and uh, we left further mutual admiration to a later date, and went on circulating. The gathering grew quite large and distinguished, and Mr. Davin, Mr. Davin himself arrived and circulated freely, very English and very gracious. He had a press photo taken with Alan Morgan and Noel Scanlon, which I found amusing somehow. Uh, I don't say much about Noel Scanlon in these things, but my memory of the gatherings, both these gatherings, uh, and also um, writers' conference that was on in Wellington in 1959, uh, was that she was very much the grand dame in the literary circles at that time. She um, also, used, also used to turn up with Eileen Duggan with great regularity at the Pat Lawler organised Catholic writers' conferences. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, over the, the, the 50s too. Yes, 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 she would be. Meanwhile, I was chatting about Indonesia with John Cole and Ditto with Christine and was introduced by Barbara to Mrs. Phillips, a woman writer, capitals, um, a small, raucous bird of a woman, and he said, she'd come along to show the flag for the older generation because there were so many young ones now whom she didn't know at all. And her eyes swept around her with distaste. Then someone, I think it was Barbara herself, introduced me to Henrietta Mason, who was apparently a sister of the Minister of Health and was retired to her own country after a distinguished career in New York. Uh, she had met Davin in New York and shortly went off to remind him of the fact. I allowed her some conversation with him and then tagged alongside, meanwhile introducing myself to A.E. Curry, who was also waiting, and who had awarded me the church prize. He told me I ought to be writing two novels at once. I was writing one at the moment at that time, which was never published because you don't get a steady income until the third. Miss Mason then saw me and introduced me, and Davin recalled that I had a story in his book and asked what I was doing now. When I told him, Mr. Curry chimed in with, I expect the plot will be as trashy as they all are, but there will be some good writing in it. I think there will be some elegant writing, said Davin, and he said that he'd read my book, which surprised me. 
and then he gracefully excused himself because he'd spied an old and dear friend, Winnie, he said to her. And I found out from Barbara Cooper later that she was Mrs. Hall, Naomi McQuilkin, alias Claire Mallory, whose books were published by the Oxford Press. Barbara Cooper had not accompanied me to see Davin, though I asked her to. I was sorry later that I hadn't insisted. I continued the conversation with Mr. Curry sitting down. Your relative by marriage, Pearl, comes to see us often, he says. She talks like an old hen, and I don't think she has two ideas in her head. But it's a pleasure these days to meet someone with such beautiful manners. Curry introduced me to Mr. Taylor of the Turnbull Library, with whom we talked about the Dewey system. I also spoke to Mari Bullock and one or two others. Some others I should have liked to, but they can wait. Though I'm sorry that I didn't wake up until after I left to the fact that the pleasant, plump, grey-haired woman must have been Margaret Garland, one of those I should most like to meet. It was the usual shifting gathering, just a few words to each, and about half of those few lost in the general hum. A very respectable-looking lot, the pen, even if they aren't rather dowdily bourgeois. I was impressed with the number of people who said they'd read the book. Um, it's my impression that such people weren't much interested at first, possibly because the papers had so managed to couple it in their minds with Junopi, and that it took the award and sundown not to move them to, to it. Uh, well, that's the end of that one, and um, I don't seem to, that's 1959, um, and I don't seem to have gone to another uh, pen gathering, or at least I couldn't find any reference to one in Wellington, and I uh, moved to Dunedin in 1962, and uh, of that's course... by saying you were leaving some encounters for another time. Yes. Yes, 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 that's right. Though I did meet some of them, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, which is what I, the way I preferred it. Um, but, of course, there were no pen gatherings in Dunedin in those days. Um, there is a reference, though, it's actually in Full of the Warm South, which has some relevance, not the entry itself, as the background. And this was the 17th of October, 1963, and it's on page 45, full of the warm south. Lunch at the Chadbolts. Morris had been in Wellington receiving the Catherine Mansfield Short Story Award. He hadn't a great deal to say about the presentation, being chiefly agitated and finding writers in Wellington agitated about Mr. Hannon's Indecent Publications Act. I'm with him in principle, but suspect in practice it will be tamer than it seems, that it puts up an illiberal facade. I may be wrong about this and complacent. We shall see. In fact, I think I was reasonably right. Um, <clears throat> but, of course, the interesting thing about this, and you'd probably find it in Stuart Perry's uh, book on the indecent publications, Tribunal, which I can't, I haven't gotten, I can't, I haven't had time to look up, and also from Christine, of course. But my memory is that 
John Rees-Cole was president of Penn at that time and was in favor of the uh, the, the tribunal. Yes, caused the great division. Yes, caused great division. And the reason uh, he, I think the reason he was in favor of it was more because he was a librarian and because he was a writer and, because, uh, and as such he'd seen the difficulties that uh, arose from the very ad hoc decisions of the customs. Uh, and uh, he was pragmatic enough to decide that there was going to be, there would be censorship of some kind anyway, and that it was better to uh, have an input into the kind of censorship there would be to try and make sure it's consistent and, uh, and reasonably liberal. And I think probably he had a certain amount of faith in um, the minister, um, Hannon, uh, in ensuring that by appointing the members of the committee, and that I think is what happened. And as you know, it didn't do yes. much too badly. No, no, that's right. But certainly, um, Morris and a lot of his friends were very uh, upset about this. And Eric, I remember, was Eric McCormick was thundering from Auckland about it. And uh, and I think a lot of them resigned. A lot of those who joined. Uh, Penn after the 1951 uh, conference resigned at that time, uh, although a lot of them again drifted back later. There was nothing really relevant to Penn um, for the rest of the time I'm in Dunedin, but um, there is after I came to Auckland because Auckland members began to revolt against the centrality of of Wellington, and uh, they established their own branch. And I think the um, prime movers of this were Keith and uh, Keith Sinclair and Carl Stead. And Dick Scott and David Ballantyne. Yeah, oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I wasn't myself uh, concerned about it at that time. But had you remained a member? But I had remained a member, and whenever there was... Um, of course, they didn't have the monthly open meetings such as they have now. They had the AGM, they had um, some social functions, and uh, they had committee meetings, but they were confined to the members of the committee. I've got a couple of references in uh, my other book, Then and There, a 1970s diary, which I don't think I'll read. There's one on the 20th of September 1974, but, um, oh yes, I will read this one. Uh, This is March 1976-19. At night we went to a meeting and gathering of pen at which such as Morris Shadbolt, Ken Arvidsson, Keith Sinclair, Carlstead, Hamish Keith, foregathered with only occasionally the tips of claws appearing from the velvet sheaths. The main principle is antipathy to Wellington, where the national executive is and always was. Frank was there, the first time anyone can remember him at such a gathering for years. He declined to be elected patron, but on his motion and Eric McCormick's comment, I found myself on the committee, which is not something I'm very grateful for, 
Maurice Chabdols is the chairman, but hardly what you would call an experienced one, having to be reminded to put motions, call for votes, or declare them lost. It's really a distinction to be so innocent of committees, a sign of grace, perhaps deliberately. Uh, this is the 5th of May, 1976. One of those days of running around and other interruptions when little enough gets done. It included a lunchtime meeting of the pen uh, of the pen committee that began at 1pm. I walked out of it at 2.30. Walked out actually on excellent sentiments being expressed by Eric McCormick, who holds the view that writers should be ascetic selves in a corrupt society, that too much pen money should be spent on lavish food as, so as social functions. He made this comment once or twice afterwards. There's a bit of an interesting and characteristically ascetic view from Eric. Yes. Yeah. I often said those kinds of things, and yes. everybody's been rather uncomfortable and embarrassed. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. I uh, also remember being at a meeting in 1981 where Eric said, we ought not to be here talking about writing matters, we ought to be on the streets opposing the Springbok tour. Oh, yes, yes. It then provoked discussion as to exactly what our area of interest and concern was. Yes, yes. But Eric had no doubt. Yes. You, you went where the... Where, where your high moral principles directed yes, you, yes. regardless of whether or not it was part of your core business. Yes, yes. Well, I have a reference to this, not from then, because I was away at the time, on holiday, I think, so I wasn't at that meeting. Um, but he brought it up at the later annual meeting. Next one. But this is the 12th of October, 1978. In the evening, St. Matthew's Church for a poetry reading run by Penn for Prisoners of Conscience Week, proceeds uh, to amnesty. Not very familiar with churches, a lot of them. And from their consciousness of it, you would think it really was numinous. But for other reasons, it wasn't the best. Too much echo and too much traffic. Public reading sorts out poets quite differently from the printed page and the unexpected may come on top, such as Russell Haley. Only Stead's quality and voice seem to me to match. All of them are upstaged by a singer from Chile, Petra of some name, songs to a guitar. April 1979, the 23rd, pen AGM at night, the meeting was routine, but some entertaining sidelights, including the old lady Gordon Dryland, who was normally quiet, but it was anything but. Keith Sinclair said he must be pissed, wanting all the students to be invited to join. Because for young people to be able to join with and identify with and look up to famous writers is so important. And an amiable but slightly barbed conversation between Carl S. and the high-heeled Bert Henley. The beautiful boy, said Jill McLaren, sitting beside me, who objected to Carl's sonnet on Russell Haley. This one is another pen function, and it's in uh, the 25th of May, 1979. This one was at the request of Peter Smart, editor of Landfall, who wanted 
to meet Auckland writers, a pleasant-looking character with wrinkled eyes, a Christ book about him somehow, Christ's, not Christ, perhaps because I know he is a Christ's. Not that I think much of his landfall, but he was friendly. Other chat much the same as usual. Bernard Brown had me over a barrel. I'd been sent a copy of a letter from the registrar giving him permission to hold the gathering in the law common room from 7.30 to 10.30. Quote, and I note that you and Mr. McEldowney will be present throughout. Bernard hadn't checked whether I would be there at all, throughout. It didn't seem the kind of crowd that would smash the light fittings. So we left before 10. <laughs> So you were supposed to hear like some kind of doctor. <laughs> yeah. That sounds amazingly archaic for something that only happened 20 odd years ago. Yes, yeah. yeah. Now there's something here that I, I, I think I will put in if this is uh, under some kind of embargo because uh, it's nothing to do with pen. It's just something that I, my eye happened on and uh, which seems to me um, to encapsulate rather neatly the um, a big part of the work of a publisher which of course is what I was doing at the same time I was in in some ways I was a bit schizophrenic being um, both a member of pen committee and being a publisher but yes, anyway I remember at least one letter of yours to the listener yes somewhat taking issue with something I yes did yes 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 that's right yes exactly this is the 20th of February 1980. I notice I've forgotten to put in its place, which was last Wednesday, my interview with Carl Stead about his draft introduction to Morris Duggan's stories. Now, I better explain that these are the collected stories of Morris Duggan, which Carl collected, edited, and introduced, which were published in the Auckland University Press's uh, New Zealand Fiction Series. My interview with Carl Stead about the, his draft introduction to Morris Duggan's stories, which I found overcool, insufficiently warm, a bit arid, giving no real impression of the man or his writing. I said so to Bill Pearson, who said he thought I might be right, but he had not said so, and Carl was so prickly uh, that he would find it suspicious if he said so now. But if I could, uh, care, if I cared to tell Carl, so I did, and he listened, and said he thought I might be right, but Bill hadn't said anything, and he was such a prickly character that he didn't know how he would react if he rewrote it. Tonight I had a visit from Barbara Duggan, who, as I had been warned by Robin Dudding, thought much the same about it. But whereas I was, I think reasonably cool in my doubts, she was, in her words, furiously indignant of what she thought was a dismissive tone. But she hadn't liked to say so to Carl, feeling that she hadn't really the right, and that he was touchy. All I could do was try to persuade her to let Carl have her reaction, that she had the right, and that Carl was not as touchy as all that, so we shall see. The 8th of February 1978 
pen committee meeting at lunchtime, during which we rubbished a proposal by Ron Riddell for pen anthologies. While joining in the hunt, I felt for, for him as a victim sometimes on my own committee and foamed at the mouth, as usual, about the arrogance of the Wellington executive. Common theme, I would say. Yes, yes. Uh, it was interesting that the idea of pen anthologies was coming up as early as that. Yeah. And I gather that something is moving in that direction now. Yeah. I, I've finally seen the uh, minutes. But... Um, we actually want one soon after. Well, oh, I've forgotten. Quite that proposal. Oh, I see. Morris, in 1979 or 1980, edited an anthology of young writers' work and pen published it. Oh, yes, and yes. And that's rather different. That's rather different, yes. Yes. But we did know at the time, it was either second pen anthology ever, the first one having been Lady Newell's... Oh, yes, yes. Yes, yes, which I've got. Yeah. I have always been cool about the idea of pen anthologies because um, if they are not simply to be self-selected, in which case they're not anthologies, um, there's got to be some kind of selection process which will set writers against writers. And I think that uh, pen shouldn't be, shouldn't uh, let itself in for um, dividing its own members in that way. I think also, any writer's organisation that does that, it's a mark of amateurishness that they're not prepared to, to, to trust normal publishing criteria yes. Yes, that's right. themselves. And in my time, it's always been brought up by people like Dennis Trussell, Alistair Patterson, or Michael Morrissey, usually when they themselves are smarting at having been left out of some recent... Yes, technology. yes, yes. Yeah. I may say that... Um, this, again, is something I shouldn't be saying, but the trio that you mentioned and their contribution to the pen meetings in Auckland was uh, one reason I began to drop out of attending pen meetings in Auckland. Now, this is, again, not, uh, not pen, but it did catch my eye as I was reading through and um, it was at another gathering, a senior common room gathering. Talking to Carl Stead, how well I think of his Casamancio's selection, which I've been reading on Coe Beach. That's his selection, his Penguin selection from the editors and journals. Keith Sinto came along. I'm feeding Carl's vanity, I said. That is one thing you need not do, said Keith. 31st of March, 1978. A meeting of the Pen Committee at Old Government House in the late afternoon. Michael King, up from Wellington, had asked to meet us. We gathered, though nothing was quite certain, to try and smooth down a few ruffled feelings left by some recent exchanges between the Auckland branch and the Wellington executive. Michael King, a very able young writer, is proving a literary political operator of a kind not seen, as Keith Sinclair remarked to me in an aside since Louis Johnson. Will be fascinating to watch. Very large pot for one so young. <laughs> April 1978, the 21st. In the evening, the pen AGM largely devoted, as usual, 
the stating the arrogance, uh, slating the arrogance of the Wellington executive. Barbara Cooper says they have the same trouble in the Rolls-Royce Car Club, over-provided with food and drink, mild socialising afterwards, when one gathered such things as that the one thing Frank Sargison listens to on the radio, apart from music, is the 7.50 morning comment, whose speakers are mainly Parsons, and that he's lately been intrigued by the utterances of Dean Martin Sullivan. That Joyce Reed is struggling with the biography of John, that Carl Stead's 14-year-old son has a love affair with green geckos, that Morris Shadbolt and Bridget Armstrong, who came in the guise of a waif wearing a large cloth cap, are evidently married, that Russell Haley, who looks so youthful, is only a year younger than Carl Stead, and that Graham Lay hails from the Island Bay fishing community, uh, which explains his Italianate look. You've been listening to diary readings by Dennis McEldowney and his surrounding discussions with Michael King. Dennis died in 2003 and Michael in 2004, so this interview between the two remains a treasured part of our National Cultural Heritage Collection. This was the last episode for Season 2 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History podcast. We'll be putting the microphone down for just a short while to work on some new episodes with well-known living writers such as Tessa Duda, Witi Ihimara and Joy Cowley. To make sure you don't miss an episode when we return, subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth kirkby McLeod with audio support by Jana Witter for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Pub Charity Limited. Laterno by Ottorine Respeggi, which you're listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Ka kite anō.